Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Our guest today is the decades-long left activist, organizer, and movement writer Max Elbaum, an occasional guest on this program. Currently an editorial board member of Convergence, a magazine for radical insights, Max is the co-editor, along with Linda Burnham and Maria Poblet, of the 2022 collection entitled Power Concedes Nothing, How Grassroots Organizing Wins Elections. Elbaum also is the author of the historical work Revolution in the Air, 60s Radicals Turn to Lenin, Mao, and Che. Today, we'll be discussing what he sees as the fundamental, crucial political, political question of our time, that is, the MAGA movement's drive toward one-party authoritarian rule, and what must be done to counteract it. We'll be drawing from his June 20 column, MAGA Authoritarian Rule or Third Reconstruction, the latest installment in, in his series of pieces titled, It Is Happening Here, appearing in Convergence. Uh, Max Elbaum, welcome from the Bay Area, to Matt, from Madison to the Bay Area. Good to have you back. Thanks, Al. It's always good to be here. You know, I was in Madison from 1967 through 1970, formative years in my life, and my heart is often drawn back to Madison. So thanks for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure always. You begin your recent column on mega-authoritarian rule by recalling that 30 years after its publication, The Age of Extremes by the late great Marxist historian Eric Hobsbawm still stands as the best history of what he called the short 20th century, the period from 1914 to 91. That in the U.S. today, Hobsbawm's chapter on the rise of fascism holds particular relevance. Why is that so? Yeah, the the column I wrote uh, is uh, principally a dissection of MAGA's strategy to achieve authoritarian rule and impose white Christian nationalist agenda on the country. And the reason I started with Hobsbawm is because Hobsbawm in his chapters on the rise of fascism makes the key point that in both Germany and Italy, the rise of fascism took place, their actual ascent to the position of power took place through constitutional means, legal and constitutional means in those two countries. Hitler was appointed chancellor by the head of Germany at the time uh, in a legal move that was legal according to the German uh, system at that time. And in Italy, Mussolini was likewise appointed prime minister. So uh, this is not a history that only the left understands. The far right and the people who started the counterattack against the gains of the 1960s and the 1930s studied this history and realized that they could craft a strategy that took advantage 
of the of the rigged anti-democratic features of the U.S. electoral and constitutional system to come to power uh, through legal and constitutional means. And the distinctive quality of authoritarianism or fascism in the 30s was once they conquered power through legal or constitutional means, they used their power to make it impossible for them to be removed from power by anything short of an overwhelmingly uh, massive uprising or armed uh, change. And so uh, this column is an attempt to dissect that strategy and its particulars in the United States. Max Elbaum, you talk about an authoritarian bloc now operating under the banner of MAGA that has captured the Republican Party and the Supreme Court and holds what you describe as uh, trifectas in 22 states. Describe the elements of that rightist block. Who are we talking about? There's two main uh, driving forces within the MAGA block. Uh, the first, and uh, what's been hegemonic within that block, is a sector of the capitalist class uh, today rooted especially in the fossil fuel industry, but also made up of a whole bunch of these libertarian right-wing uh, billionaires and the Charles Koch, Koch network, was the Koch brothers network. Um, and these are folks who've never really accepted that even the New Deal uh, and the fossil fuel industry uh, with their campaign of climate change denialism uh, you know, doesn't want to deal with the fact that the majority in the country, especially among youth, want to, uh, you know, divest from fossil fuels and end the domination of the fossil fuel industry. So one wing of MAGA is devoted to uh, a policy of all wealth to the wealthy energy policy to the fossil fuel industry like that. The other main component of MAGA is a multi-class set of layer of the population that has been most invested in the idea that the United States is a white Christian country. And people who, their view is that only uh, white Christians and uh, are the uh, legitimate Americans, and they believe in a society ordered along theocratic lines with racial and gender hierarchy. And this is a layer of the population uh, and the wing of the capitalists of class that, that are, you know, deeply rooted going back to the origins of this country. Uh, those are the two key forces. Uh, they jockey for position uh, and leadership within the MAGA bloc, but they're united on the fact that uh, they don't want majority rule in this country. They don't want democracy in this country. They think that the demographic changes and the radicalization of youth threatens uh, if there was a democratic system that they couldn't accomplish their agenda, they couldn't maintain an all wealth to the wealthy economy and a society built in white and male supremacy and homophobia and transphobia. So they've turned to a strategy of the seek search for authoritarian rule, uh, minority white Christian rule, uh, that could remain in power despite majority opposition. You, you point out that this uh, authoritarian bloc is steadily moving ahead with plans to capture 
complete federal power in 2024. And, um, and, and that is what you describe as an, uh, the underlying political dynamic defining the current period. Take that a little bit deeper. That's, that's a pretty strong phrasing. Well, uh, you know, the backlash against the gains of the 1960s uh, has been going on for 60 years. Uh, the Voting Rights Act in 1965 was the decisive legislative uh, measure that ended the white monopoly on political power or potentially ended it and provided the legal basis to end it, busted up Jim Crow. Uh, and as soon as that passed, the electoral and uh, political system was potentially changed. And we began to see that in the late 60s and early 70s and the beginnings of black elected officials in other places, massive black voter turnout, uh, with the end of racist immigration quotas, the expansion of people of color voting in immigrant communities. Uh, and the general uh, advance of democratic rights is really time since the Reconstruction period and 10 years after the Civil War that the United States even came close uh, to uh, what, you know, it's often called the bourgeois democracy, you know, majority rule, one, one person, one vote. Uh, and that also put a big dent in, uh, at that time, the role of money in politics, gerrymandering, uh, the Voting Rights Act was protection against uh, voter suppression. And uh, that meant that uh, the far right that wanted to uh, have its agenda took the offensive against this. Uh, and that went through a whole series of stages, the campaigns against uh, affirmative action, against feminism, the anti-gay rights campaigns of the 70s, the election of Ronald Reagan and the imposition of the neoliberal economic model in the 80s, the Tea Party and the reaction to the election of the first black president, uh, and then Donald Trump and the unleashing of the uh, making a uh, going from dog whistles to open and shameless uh, white supremacist messages and the incorporation of openly fascist militias uh, into the Republican coalition that's taken place since January 6th, actually started somewhat before January 6th. So this is a 60-year dynamic that's been underway and it's gone through ebbs and flows. There's been resistance to it. There have been some many times and some issues. The progressive forces in U.S. society have made gains. But I say that's the main dynamic because it's the trajectory that the country has been on uh, for the last 40 or 50, 60 years in fits and starts with a very conscious organizing strategy on the other side, which we can talk about a little bit later. Sure. Uh, the anti-mega majority... Uh, a huge wake-up call of Donald Trump's election meant that in 2018, 2020, and 2022 elections showed that when MAGA was explicitly on the agenda, when their candidates were front and center, the majority rejected them. So MAGA hasn't been able to fulfill its maximum agenda uh, by capturing the White House 
trifectas in more states and winning uh, majorities in the Senate and the House. They have managed to capture the Supreme Court through the way they manipulated things during the uh, Obama and then Trump presidencies. So I think the main drama is whether they're going to succeed in 2024 or after, or whether they're going to be beaten back and some new governing coalition will take place. And the drama, if that happens, is how much power will progressives and the left have to shape the new agenda. You're listening to left activist, author, uh, political activist, and so on and so on. Max Elbaum, who's back with us today to talk about his recent piece uh, called MAGA Authoritarian Rule or Third Reconstruction. We'll be opening up the phone lines at half past the hour, as is usually the case. If you want to get in on this conversation with a question, a comment, an observation for our guest today, give us a call at 608 256 2001. Max, before we go much further, I want to go back to something you've referred to twice now, just to make sure uh, people are uh, along for the conversation. And that is, what do you mean by trifecta states? Uh, trifectas are places uh, where the Republic or one party or another controls the governorship and both legislative houses. Uh, in the state government. In the U.S. federal system, there's a lot of power invested in the states uh, that devolves to the states, a lot of budgetary uh, authority, a lot of uh, legal authority, uh, and especially with this Supreme Court uh, rolling back federal protections, including abortion rights, uh, the threat to gay rights, trans rights, uh, labor questions, I mean, we have in the, the right to work states and so on. So there's a lot of power in the state governments and where Republicans have managed to secure super majorities in the legislatures, as well as the governorships, they're essentially able to start implementing their agenda on the state level, uh, even before they capture full federal power. Uh, these are termed, uh, I forget the author's name, but they've been termed authoritarian enclaves within a formally democratic system, uh, formally, uh, officially democratic. So where they have a trifecta, and you can see what's happened in Florida or Texas, some of the other states, there it's threatening to happen right now in North Carolina, uh, there in Wisconsin, uh, been on the edge of this back and forth. I know the recent Supreme Court election there was very important. Um, so they both put in place policies that are repressive around abortion rights, trans rights, book bans, uh, banning cities from uh, Texas and Florida. In Texas, Houston can't pass uh, certain uh, ordinances around anti-discrimination because the state has preempted that. Rent control in some states is preempted, those kinds of things. And they also use that power to gerrymander the electoral uh, system so that they can't be dislodged because they pack all the Democratic-leaning areas into some a few districts, and then they take 40 uh, districts and even in a state like North Carolina or, you know, Wisconsin, 
where the state is split about 50-50 between MAGA and its opposition, they get 60 to 70 or 80 percent of the state legislature seats. So that's what you can do when you have a trifecta. Um, just to note that on the more hopeful side, developments recently in Minnesota and Michigan where, Republic, where the Democrats hold trifectas and where progressives have a substantial degree of influence because they uh, are a big part of what got those uh, majorities and trifectas. Some very progressive legislation has been passed in Minnesota and Michigan in the last year. Max Elbaum, going back, going back a step to this steadily, this movement, this MAGA movement moving steadily ahead with plans to capture complete federal uh, power in, in 2024. You've already alluded to the fact, of course, that it's not a done deal. You say that you. Excuse me. You say that what you refer to as this MAGA drive can be stopped. How so? What is what is needed to do so? Well, the majority of people in this country are against the MAGA agenda. Uh, and we even see that in some of the states, uh, you know, around the referenda, around abortion rights. Uh, and uh, what happened in 2022, where everyone was expecting the big red wave, and although there were, uh, I think, some underestimate how the gains that the Republicans did make, uh, where their candidates were the most extreme MAGA people, they were beaten. Um, so, it, you know, we're stuck in a situation uh, where it's we don't really have a choice to uh, fight. We have to fight on the electoral terrain. Uh, now, defeating MAGA or any right-wing movement like this requires a lot more than beating them in elections. You have to change the battle balance of public opinion. You need a strong uh, working class and broader multi-class progressive movement that can uh, take them on uh, on the picket lines in schools and the battle for public opinion on specific policy fights. So it's not strictly an electoral battle. Uh, but we can't ignore the electoral arena because that's the route that MAGA strategy has focused on in terms of their ability uh, to take full federal power. So if MAGA can be beaten in the elections and non-MAGA or anti-MAGA candidates are winning in the, uh, con control of the House, control of the Senate uh, and the presidency, and if the progressive movement develops enough enough clout, independent clout to help shape that agenda uh, and not have that agenda be determined solely or mainly by the centrist Democrats, the Biden wing of the Democratic Party, uh, then we can move the country in another direction. And that's where the concept of a third reconstruction comes in, in terms of goals, um, which resonates with U.S. history and first reconstruction after the Civil War, and then uh, the gains of the 60s are often termed second reconstruction. You talk about the need to accurately understand the existence and composition of this, the country's anti-MAGA majority. Um, and an older term used to be used about an, an understanding and assessment of the correlation of forces Talk, can you take that a little bit further? 
Well, in terms, there's a couple ways to cut that one. Uh, One is to look at the uh, population layers um, by sector and so on. Uh, The black vote is the most consistent anti-MAGA vote in the country. Um, Then there's also the uh, LGBTQ community, increasingly uh, women, the gender gap is very real. there is a class tilt. Uh, you know, there's a lot in the press about the number of white uh, whites from the working class who defected to MAGA. But that's a more complicated situation. The fact of the matter is in the blue and purple states, uh, the, the working class of all racial and national groups still tilts anti-MAGA. Um, and uh, that's especially true in the blue states. Uh, So you can look at it by sectors that way. Uh, The other key element of that is a generational thing. Uh, The youngest generational cohorts, uh, people who came in, who were first eligible to vote in 2018, 2020, or 2022, are against MAGA by figures up to three and four to one. Uh, There's some regional breakdown in that, uh, but it's a substantially anti-MAGA force. So that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is uh, politically that the anti-MAGA block, uh, there's three components uh, politically of the anti-MAGA block. The smallest is uh, a thin layer of anti-MAGA Republicans or former Republicans, conservatives, people like Liz Cheney. Uh, So there's some number of people who are actually traditional conservatives. Um, We disagree with them on pretty much right down the line on policy issues, certainly on foreign policy. Many of them are neocons and so on. Uh, But they believe in uh, majority rule. Uh, And they are, uh, some of them have some moral qualms about the overt racism, sexism, and homophobia of MAGA. So there's a thin layer of anti-MAGA conservatives. And then the two larger blocks are the Biden wing of the Democratic Party and the Bernie wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, and within the burning wing of society, not just the Democratic Party, uh, there's revolutionaries, Marxists and socialists who are also anti-MAGA. Um, there's clearly a lot of differences of opinion strategically about exactly how we function in this situation. But the majority in the 2018, on the electoral side in 2018, 2020 and 2022, the bulk of the centrist block and the progressive block voted against MAGA. And that was responsible uh, from the political angle as well as the social sector label uh, angle uh, for the defeats that holding them at bay. Um, and uh, in non-electoral struggle, of course, then the broad front takes place in different ways. and. Uh, different fights have different alignments of forces. Uh, we just saw a key election in Chicago where uh, Brandon Johnson, uh, a, not just a progressive, but a working class uh, organizer, teacher coming out of that, defeated someone who was nominally a Democrat and was supported by the Democratic establishment as well as the right wing. So the alliances in different places don't all match up neatly. Uh, but there tends to be a broad front against MAGA when the candidates of the Republican Party are clearly identified uh, as MAGA candidates. 
Again, you're listening to Max Elbaum. If you want to get in with the a question, a comment, an observation for our guest today, give us a call at 608-256-2001. The phone lines are now open. Max Elbaum, you note that while the election year is already heating up, that no significant section of the Republican Party is stepping away from the drive toward authoritarian rule. Break that down a little bit. Well, you know, there's a media frenzy about the Republican primaries. And everybody's, you know, is it DeSantis? Is it Trump? Uh, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Mike Pence, what's going on with all of those different folks? Uh, There is contention in the Republican Party and in the mega bloc of who should be the standard bearer uh, and what faction should dominate. Uh, So there are people distancing themselves from from Trump. They think he's be a weak candidate because he's alienated so many people. Uh, He's obviously a disturbed personality, incredible amount of narcissism. Uh, He's not exactly a disciplined fascist the way DeSantis is. Um, So there's a lot of back and forth about that. But as far as the policy agenda, and voters and the idea that they will suppress the steps for majority rule, no one in the Republican Party has come out for uh, re- reestablishing, passing again, and strengthening the Voting Rights Act. Nobody in the Republican Party has come out for uh, term limits or some other reform on the Supreme Court. Nobody in the Republican Party uh, has come out. Uh, saying that it's clear that January 6th was a a sustained attempt um, to uh, take power by illegal means and overturn an election. Not a single House member of the Republican Party voted against the censure of Adam Schiff uh, for leading the impeachment uh, process against Donald Trump. So there's no one in the Republican Party other than, again, you know, Liz Cheney, who lost her bid for re-election, there's no significant force within the Republican Party now that's separating itself from the MAGA agenda. There are people who are separating themselves from Donald Trump, and there are people who are fighting over uh, who, you know, exactly what, what aspects of the Republican agenda should be most pressed. Um, but those are fights under the tent. The basic program, uh, racial and gender hierarchy, voter suppression, gerrymandering. Uh, there's no uh, there's no significant dissent about any of that within the Republican Party at this point. We had a we had a caller that uh, called in but didn't necessarily want to be online. Uh, a person asks, uh, can you please define what you mean by MAGA, which was one of my original questions that I've overlooked. <laughs> Thank you, Carl. Um, yeah, my bad. Uh, Make America Great Again has been, uh, was the organizing slogan for Trump in 2016. And uh, that has gotten shortened to MAGA uh, and has become, I think, uh, a shorthand way of describing uh, the block that's striving for authoritarian rule. 
Uh, you could also, you know, in 2016, 2017, 2018, people talked about Trumpism. Uh, and that was uh, uh, positive in one sense, because Trump was certainly the standard bearer uh, of that trend. But the problem with the term Trumpism was it was I too identified with one individual. Uh, and it might have carried the implication that uh, Trumpism only started with Trump. Uh, but Trump himself was as much a reflection of this 40, 50, 60 year counteroffensive against the gains of the 60s as he was, uh, you know, someone who then accelerated. He, he didn't create that. He learned, uh, he was brilliant at harnessing and tapping into that and making it more legitimate in the public square. Uh, so there's debate uh, in the left. Uh, I think that the, the block that's striving for authoritarian rule contains a strong fascist current within it, but I don't think the entire uh, MAGA block could be quite yet characterized as fascist. So I'm a little reluctant to, you know, say the fascist block. And MAGA is a convenient way since they all talk about uh, making America great again, uh, although some of them use other phraseology. You know, that leads into my next question, actually, and that is referring back to that longer history. Uh, you point at the, pointed out that in both Italy and Germany, with their, with their distinct political systems, Mussolini and then Hitler and their movements came to power through constitutional means. We've, we've touched on that, of course. You do so to point out that the undemocratic features of the U.S. constitutional electoral system are different that aspiring authoritarians here have crafted approaches to take advantage of the U.S. specifics. Let's talk about some of those undemocratic features of the system. Yeah. Um, well, there's no protection of one person, uh, one vote in the Constitution. There's no protection, in fact, of the right to vote in the Constitution. Um, it, 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 so that has opened the door to voter suppression rules, um, to gerrymandering, um, to the unlimited power of money within the uh, electoral system. That's one angle. Uh, the federal system, uh, the structure of the Senate and the Electoral College gives tremendous undue power to small states. And in the uh, demographics of the United States, that's a racial bias. The small states with white pop majority white populations or overwhelmingly white populations have the same representation in the Senate and disproportion, therefore disproportionate um, strength within the Electoral College. So California with 30 million people and it's a majority people of color state uh, has two senators in Wyoming, which has less than a million people and is overwhelmingly white, has two senators. Um, so all, those are the key undemocratic features. The two-party winner-take-all system is also, uh, uh, in, uh, I, it's not in the, quite the same category of being undemocratic, but it's certainly less democratic than a parliamentary system with proportional representation. Uh, which allows different voices uh, to be represented in, in uh, the legislative bodies. 
uh, we have a situation where you have to form the coalition uh, before the election uh, in order to agree on one candidate rather than uh, have a proportional representation system where the progressives in the United States might have 20% of the Congress, and then they can decide and negotiate how to make alliances if necessary to hold off a fascist or authoritarian bloc. But we don't have that kind of system. So all these have left a loophole. And as I mentioned before, the Voting Rights Act in 1965 was a big step in trying to close at least some of those loopholes, which is why it's been in the target of the right wing, especially the legal side of it, the Federalist Society, since a few hours after it was passed in 1965. And the Supreme Court has gutted the, um, we shouldn't mistake the one favorable ruling that they gave us uh, this term on the Voting Rights Act. They've gutted the Voting Rights Act for most. And this is like, okay, we're not going to pull, we stuck the knife in 10 feet, we're going to pull it out a few inches. Since you mentioned it, go a little bit further with the Federalist Society, especially for our listeners who might not be familiar with it at all. Talk about what the Federalist Society is and its strategies, uh, uh, legal uh, and so on, challenges, et cetera, and, uh, and what it has been up to. Federalist Society was formed, I think, in 83 or 82, early Reagan years. It became the legal arm of the uh, counteroffensive, the strategic hub uh, to take advantage of the legal system. Uh, its, its goals were to uh, take over the judiciary by starting a pipeline of how to get right-wing lawyers appointed to be judges and then uh, all the way up into the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court. Uh, it developed uh, legal theories, particularly the theory of originalism uh, which they claim that uh, the Constitution should be interpreted strictly by the text of the Constitution. Uh, and any, all the developments, changes in society since then uh, are irrelevant to uh, what the court should be doing. Uh, and uh, using legal, certain, picking certain legal cases to move through the judicial system uh, to try to undermine uh, the rights uh, that the courts were protecting for a certain period. Uh, you know, the left, uh, the, our generation, uh, the Warren Court in uh, the late 50s and in, in then the courts uh, into the 60s and 70s, this was a very unusual period in U.S. history where the Supreme Court was actually a defender and extender of civil and constitutional rights and a broad interpretation of the 14th Amendment, equal protection of the laws and enforcement of the Voting Rights Act, the passage, the Roe decision, Roe v. Wade. Uh, traditionally, if over the broad scope of U.S. history, the judiciary has played a reactionary role uh, and held back uh, you know, uh, the development and acted as a check on the legislative or executive body uh, ability to um, expand democracy. Um, and this Federalist Society basically said, we want to go back to that. 
And they worked out a sophisticated legal strategy. They've been working it for 40 years, and we've seen the results of it. Uh, those six majority, uh, certainly five of them, uh, you know, you, Roberts is, was an early harbinger of this, but all of the others, they're political partisans. Uh, they're, they're either in the bucket of big capital or in the bucket of the Christian nationalists. And they, you know, originalism is a nice legal theory that they use when they want to use it and they completely toss it out and make up other crap when they don't want to. It's, it's, so it's, these are not people who are weighing the law. These are people with a political agenda. Again, you're listening to our guest today, Max Elbaum, decades-long left activist, organizer, <clears throat> and movement writer. We're talking about the move to toward authoritarian rule, the MAGA move toward authoritarian rule, uh, and what is to be done, really, uh, in opposition? We have, well, we're almost, we got about 12, 13 minutes left in the hour. Give us a call if you want to join us at 608-256-2001. Max, you've, you've reminded us of a longer history in which white supremacists took advantage of such features that you laid out earlier, uh, but but that Popular and progressive forces mounted successful challenges to that order in the 50s and 60s, that it was mass pressure that also pushed legislative and judicial bodies in a positive direction, you know, that moves, that those years of the liberal court, Supreme Court, uh, did not happen in a vacuum, of course. Talk about that, the, um, and what that means for the present. Yeah, uh, the 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 black-led civil rights movement uh, that germinated. Uh, I mean, it, it, you could trace its origins back to the, the 1619. Uh, it's just gone through different phases, uh, but certainly in the World War II, there was the double V campaign: victory over fascism abroad, victory over racism at home. There was a spurt of uh, progressive uh, anti-racist organizing right after World War II, a lot of returning black vets uh, in that, uh, freedom rides in the night, late 1940s, the Henry Wallace campaign, which spoke to integrated audiences in the Jim Crow South. But the period of McCarthyism pretty much put the lid on that for a while uh, until the Montgomery bus boycott in 1954, 55, starts a whole range of uh, mass pressure from below. And that movement cascaded uh, a broad front against um, the Jim Crow and the exclusion of African-Americans, uh, racial segregation, civil rights, and voting rights uh, fights. And a tremendous mass movement with uh, basically a, a, an international character. I mean, this was connected at that time to the global struggles against Western domination, struggles against white supremacy and U.S. imperialism, Western imperialism all over the world. And in the context of the battle for hearts and minds around the world, uh, that played a big role also in the Supreme Court's Brown versus Board of Education decision. Um, very complicated interaction uh, between the civil rights movement and the electoral side. 
You know, in the 1964 election, Goldwater said civil rights were a states' rights issue. Segregation was a states' rights issue. He was opposed to the Civil Rights Act. He would have vetoed the Voting Rights Act. Um, so Johnson's election in 64, I mean, uh, you know, people like me protested Lyndon Johnson every single day because of the Vietnam War starting in 1965, 66. Uh, but uh, so it's a very complicated situation because Johnson pushed through, played a role in pushing through the Voting Rights Act. Um, complicated situation, but it was all driven uh, by the mass upsurge from below. And that's still the case today. Uh, we're not going to deal a decisive blow against MAGA without uh, revitalization of mass movements from below, but revitalization of the labor movement, uh, building off the George Floyd uprising to strengthen the black community movements, uh, the uh, women's movement, all, all the different progressive movements. We're going to need a disruptive flank uh, in the broad uh, movement against the right and against fascism. We need to take those fights into the school boards, meetings, uh, and so on. These uh, potential strikes coming up, uh, the UPS strike, uh, you know, these are things that can ignite and shape public opinion. Uh, we do have to engage the electoral arena, um, and we need to have that kind of, uh, there have, we have to electoralize that energy also, uh, because MAGA's, again, root to power. The electoral arena is very close. The presidential election uh, just like in 2020, and it's going to be decided in six states, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, um, maybe North Carolina. Uh, you know, that's, uh, you can, you, you know, right now, which way the blue states and the solid red states are. And, and in this crazy system, uh, you could win the popular vote by 10 million votes uh, and still lose the election because of the electoral college. So uh, it's, we have a lot of uh, things to ignite, uh, but we need both uh, the mass action and organizing and the electoral flank. You know, Jay tells me, our engineer today, Jay tells me that we have Ron on the line with a comment. Hello, Ron, you're on the air. Okay, thanks, Alan, for the show. Uh, I, I want to comment that... Uh, uh, you mentioned earlier that in Germany the uh, the right uh, had a great uh, following, and part of that was the fact that uh, the Hugenberg Press had 600 papers all over the country operating to support the right wing. And here in this country, the similar thing is going on with local media and uh, media across different platforms. Also, with the uh, use of Alec. Uh, putting in legislation in all these legislatures, legislatures that they control, and getting model bills adopted. And so I was wondering if uh, your guests could tell us how we counteract the media strategy and the strategy of ALEC. And I'll hang up and listen. Yeah, great point. Uh, you know, uh, Fox News, the right-wing media uh, empire, uh, and what you mentioned about the local media, uh, this is uh, an, a key weapon in the right-wing's arsenal. And uh, we have to try to match that. 
that that's the basic answer on the media side. Uh, we have to rebuild local journalism. Uh, there was an interesting story today about uh, uh, effort in Maine uh, successfully uh, buying back local media for a nonprofit and uh, community benefit. So we have to work on the local level. There have been various efforts uh, to build a left-wing media. Uh, there's some interesting things going on now in both internet-based and also non-internet-based uh, media. Uh, there's discussions going on between people uh, in the different left publications, The Nation, In These Times, Jacobin, Convergence that I work on. We're trying to figure out ways where we can magnify our voice and figure out being uh, build much more broader media situation, but we're way behind the curve on that. Uh, as far as Alec uh, and working state legislatures, uh, I, I think that uh, on that level, we're also behind the curve. Uh, but at the federal and state level, there are efforts to try to build more coordination uh, between progressive uh, electeds and non-electeds uh, that can help them uh, draft legislation. The Green New Deal uh, project was extremely interesting and productive uh, in cooperation between some of the people elected uh, in the legislature, especially in the squad, uh, and some of the groups, the environmental groups, uh, mainstream as well as the environmental justice and left groups, uh, to craft legislation. Uh, and formulate that. And, uh, you know, Sunrise did that sit-in, AOC, Pelosi. You start to develop that kind of thing. But it has to be institutionalized. Uh, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, for the first time in the last few years, now has some rules. There's, you know, it doesn't have the kind of tight discipline or anything that the Freedom Caucus does in the House on the right-wing side. But we're moving toward more coordination on the left, and that's extremely important. Um, I think the caller makes a really important point, and it's just that we're behind the curve. Uh, and uh, organizers, the people who fund left things, don't have that long-range vision all the time. There's some changes there. And then we have to build up mass organizations that are participatory and turn us all into uh, activists uh, with a, some kind of coherence. Max Elbaum, uh, with the few minutes we have, let's, let's turn our f attention to the 2024 election and beyond. You talk in, in your toward, toward that in regard, you, you, I'm sorry, you speak about three major imperatives that stand out. What are those? Uh, well, uh, you know, you talked about you talked about yeah. staying clear-eyed on the fundamental political dynamic, um, uh, what it means if MAGA succeeds, uh, that the uh, electoral ter <clears throat> terrain will be the main battlefront against MAGA. Go into that a bit. That is, you know, the re one reality, of course, is that we we both know many of us know uh, folks who say, well. Um, uh, come out with such lines as, well, uh, the uh, Democratic Party is, is a graveyard, uh, and so on, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, let me, let me do that this way. Um, we need to build the independent progressive power of folks 
organizations and individuals in this country who advocate a third reconstruction, a robust multiracial gender inclusive democracy and economy works that works for all, a sustainable planet environmentally uh, as a pathway toward uh, uh, the end to capitalism. And that process takes time. We have, that takes being embedded in oppressed and exploited constituencies, building organizations, strengthening organizations that exist, that are structure-based, like the labor movement, where its members aren't members of a union because they have a certain political view, but because they work at a certain place. We have to build that power if we're going to make long-range progressive change. But under what conditions are we going to make that are we going to be able to do that organizing? If we don't have a certain amount of time and a certain amount of democratic space to function, we're not going to be able to do that. And it's no secret of what's going to happen uh, if MAGA controls the federal government. We're going to see a combination of COINTELPRO and McCarthyism against the left. Uh, they're straight up about it. You know, socialists are not welcome in Florida. Stay home. We're going to pardon all the January 6th defendants. If people think that under a second Trump term or a DeSantis term, people are going to be able to hold left meetings, rallies, and so on without those being broken up, I think people are uh, living in an illusion. We're going to be under those direct gun sites. So we have to defeat MAGA to buy the time and space in order to build up that independent progressive power and be the kind of force where uh, we can set the agenda of electeds, whether it's via the Democratic Party or some other arrangement. We're not going to do that if we can't keep MAGA out of power. That's the block and build strategy. Build our power while we make sure we block uh, the authoritarian right. And to me, that means we have to come together and vote for anti-MAGA candidates at every single level, to defeat the Republican Party, uh, including holding our nose and voting for some pretty lousy Democrats. But that's, you know, we don't get to choose the terrain. Uh, we make our own history, but not any way we want. This is the situation we're stuck with. And in order to have the space to build that kind of progressive power, we have to keep MAGA out of power. You talk about, in closing, you, t- you, come, you talk about the need to make a compelling narrative about this country's history and the future, um, uh, uh, creating a, a new common sense to millions of Americas, Americans. Excuse me. What would that narrative include? Yeah, that's a tough one. And if I had an easy answer to that, uh, I would have written <laughs> about it. Uh, the MAGA narrative, you know, Good, hardworking white people built this country and are now being victimized. America was great. Uh, that God has given us a certain thing. Gives people a tremendous sense of belonging and identity. And it's very powerful. And that holds a lot of MAGA together. And we need to develop uh, an identity as that taps into the democratic and anti-racist and inclusive and class struggles. That's also the subordinate tradition in U.S. history. We haven't dominated it. 
But from Sitting Bull to Frederick Douglass to Eugene Debs, to Helen Keller, Martin Luther King, uh, we need a story where we fit in as a historical actor and it gives us meaning, a sense of belonging and confidence in the future. We have Max Selbaum, we have but a minute left. Uh, how can people read your stuff? Uh, maybe a word about convergence uh, and so on, and then we'll have to call it quits. Uh, convergencemag.com. Uh, I write a regular column, call as it is happening here. There's a lot of other uh, writers. We're rolling out a couple of new podcasts, Black Work Talk, a podcast by one of the uh, one of the founders of uh, the Sunrise Movement, another one by Maurice Weeks. He'll be the host on uh, In Debt, uh, how people are being kept in poverty through debt. Um, so that's Convergence. Uh, I also, you mentioned the book I co-edited with Linda and Maria, Power Concedes Nothing. You can punch that into Google, Power Concedes Nothing, How Grassroots Organizers uh, Organizing Wins Election. It's a collection of uh, articles by people who threw down in 2020, especially in battleground states, and what the lessons was about the interrelationship of electoral organizing and a long-range power-building strategy. Uh, those are ways okay. to tap into it. Thanks. Well, well Max Elbaum, we unfortunately have to leave it there. We're right here with the time crutch. I want to thank Jade uh, for engineering and producing. I want to thank you, Maxie, of course. Uh, I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be well, talking with you next week. Pre-recorded with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream.